Oh, wow. Wow. Well, welcome this morning. My name is Sarah. I'm one of the associate pastors here. And this morning we get to talk about singleness and marriage. I was unmarried for the first 30 years of my life. Today, I have been married to Stephen Watson for six years. And speaking of number statistics, our first date lasted for 12 hours. Don't worry, it's nothing scandalous. It actually started at 5 a.m. He had friends who were coming into Pittsburgh and taking the train from Pittsburgh to Boston. And they said, hey, Stephen, do you think you'd have any, like, just really nice friends who might might come and pick up our car so we don't have to leave it in long-term parking the whole time. And Stephen's like, you know, I might be able to get somebody who would be that nice. And so he asked me if, you know, I'd be willing to just drive into the city, pick up his friend's car. Um, I'm like, sure. And he, he's like, there's only one catch. They, they leave at 6 a.m., so I'll have to pick you up at 5. I said, no problem. I'm looking forward to it. Happy to do it. This will be fun. I thought, 5 a.m.? This will be fun. Score. Cha-ching. I thought maybe I might like him a little bit when I got up, not five minutes before five, but when I actually got up at like four o'clock in the morning to make myself look presentable. But we went, met his friends, got the keys. Um, we had a good bit of time to kill before brunch that, that morning. Most brunch places don't open till like 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning. Can you believe it? Um, we hung out for a while. I asked him at some point in time, you know, what have you got planned for the rest of your Saturday? And he said, oh, probably doing homework for this class. I need to go to the laundromat, get some laundry done. And about 11 a.m. in the morning, I'm like, we've been together for a long time. We only just met. And so I said, you know, I'm sure you, you want to head back out, get that laundry done. And he said, no, let's go to the botanical gardens you were telling me about. And I just really, like, I could not believe he wanted to spend more time with me. Eventually, we, we went back. Um, you know, I drove his friend's car, dropped off the keys with him, and, and he said, oh, what are you doing this evening? I said, well, you know, I'm going to take my dog for a walk. He's like, you want some company? I actually told a little bit of a white lie. I'm like, no, I really have to call my parents. I got important things. I, I got to call my parents while I walk the dog, because I could not believe that he actually wanted to spend more time with me. It was not love at first sight, but I think it was like at first sight. Uh, we liked each other, we saw a lot of each other, um, but we did take it pretty slow with the confidence of people who are, are secure, relatively mature. He was not going anywhere. I did not have any competition. I knew who I was. <laughs> Stephen's like, when is this sermon going to be over? Five minutes, sir, and I'll get the cane. But I knew he liked me, and he knew that I liked him. That first date in Pittsburgh, it's going to get even worse, guys. It was raining, and we had only one umbrella. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I thought this was my perfect opportunity to kind of cozy up to him. And he wouldn't have any of it. I was like, oh, oh we're going to be like that, huh? Respect. But I knew, I knew he liked me. <laughs> we met in seminary. We dated in community. We got some really awful dating advice from theology professors who would tell us about, you know, how things were in biblical days and, and whatever. Um, 
but it was a great place to be dating in a Christian community. We got engaged right before uh, I graduated. The next day after we got engaged, um, I had a presentation for the board of trustees, and um, I saw the dean president and told him that we got engaged. He's this very, very smart British guy, kind of stoic, extremely smart. Um, and he tears up, and he goes and tells the whole board of trustees, and, and they clap. And um, It was just a great community in which to do dating. It was the most peace-filled relationship that I had had. I'm a real journaler, and at some point in time while we were dating, I thought, oh my gosh, I haven't journaled about our relationship at all. Other relationships had had pages of pros and cons and in-depth analysis. I thought, like, is this okay? But it was. You know, I, I was just really at peace about it. Both of us were, you know, relatively mature, differentiated, content, happy individuals. And from that place, I think we had the perfect romance. Love was not an anxious grab at a relationship, an anxious grab for relationship. Love was just a free response to the other person. I think good relationships are not Hollywood or Disney dreams of romance. They're not Cosmo or Sex in the City fantasies of glamour and having it all. They're not the American dream, white picket fence goals of settling in and, and making it. Good relationships are about when I am open and honest and vulnerable about who I am, when I know who I am, and I allow another person in to love and forgive and encourage me. Ultimately, I think that good relationships point us to Jesus and are all about living into the gospel, that we are created in the image of God with the capacity for amazing good, but we live in a messed up world with jealousies and pressure and selfishness. Our relationships are places where we see the best in us and the worst in us, and we are pointed to the redemption and restoration that only Jesus can bring. Jesus has entered into the dark places with us in his death on the cross, and he has conquered it by his resurrection. Following Jesus is the way that we give those places of hurt and frustration and failure and the ugly things inside us when we give them to Jesus and we are healed and forgiven and restored. I think when I, when my real self, not not who I like to think I am, not who I want other people to be, not who I hope to be, but when my real self is in relationship with God, then I can form good relationships with others. Only my real self can really receive love. Only my real self can find fulfilling relationships. Only my real self can know God and find the intimacy with God and with others that I long for. Relationships will show us our need for Jesus. So let's turn to Jesus and pray as we get started this morning. Jesus, we thank you that we have come here together with you. And whether we came here by ourselves, whether we came here in a car filled with other people, whether we came here in a car filled with other people who we are arguing with, we came here with you this morning. We do not do this by ourselves. We have our best friend side by side with us. We welcome your presence to speak to us, Jesus, in what can be um, a difficult topic. We give you um, regret, shame, guilt, um, the past hopes, the past uh, just things we've clung on to, Jesus. We give it all to you. 
Thank you that we have you um, doing relationships together with us. We are not alone. We invite you to speak to us, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so we're going to be this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So this was written by Paul, an early leader in the church. This was his letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. And you know, sometimes we think that here in modern America, we just have the most complicated relationships going on. We've got online dating apps. We've got so much. We've got porn, whatever. These guys had very complicating sexual dating marriage circumstances to work through. We are not the first people to have to deal with this. So these guys, actually, what they thought is, maybe, since we have everything so messed up, and it was pretty messed up and complicated, like, maybe we should just all be monks and nuns, and, and that would be the best thing for it. So this is what they say, and I'm reading from the message version today, because I just like this translation. Um, so chapter 7, verse 1. Now, getting down to the question you asked in your letter to me. First, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Certainly, but only within a certain context. It is good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. Sex is good in the committed, the, the green pastures of marriage in that boundaries. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other person, whether in bed or out. This is not something Paul had to write about. In his cultural context, this is not something that would be expected from him, but he includes this. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time, if you both agree on it, and if it's for the purposes of prayer and fasting, but only for such time, then come back together again. Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not, understand, commanding these periods of abstinence, only providing my best counsel if you should choose them. If you really want to do a celibate season in your marriage, Paul says, okay, but both of you need to agree. This is a very specific question they had for him. He says, you know, guys, sometimes I wish everyone were single like me a simpler life in many ways. But celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriage is. God gives the gift of the single life to some, the gift of the married life to others. I do, though, tell the unmarried and widows that singleness might well be the best thing for them as it has been for me. But if they can't manage their desires and emotions, they should by all means go ahead and get married. The difficulties of marriage are preferable by far to a sexually tortured life as a single. Other translations say burning with passion. So go ahead, get married. Paul's just saying, hey, I really like being single. Paul had a very fulfilling full life and being single actually freed him up to do amazing things. <clears throat> if you are married, stay married. This is the Lord's command, not mine. If a wife should leave her husband, she must either remain single or else come back and make things right with him. And a husband has no right to get rid of his wife. For the rest of you who are in mixed marriages, Christian married to non-Christian, we have no explicit command 
from the Lord. The Bible does counsel. You know, if you're following Jesus, if you're serious about following Jesus, it's best to find somebody else who's also running in the same direction as you are. Um, but if you're not, okay, that's fine. Paul says, this is what you must do. If you're a man with a wife who is not a believer, but who still wants to live with you, hold on to her. If you are a woman with a husband who is not a believer, but he wants to live with you, hold on to him. The unbelieving husband shares to an extent in the holiness of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is likewise touched by the holiness of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be left out. As it is, they are included in the spiritual purposes of God. Many of you here had one believing parent either your mother or your father, and it really impacted and, and touched your life for the better. God can work through many things, even if it's not like the ideal, ideal marriage. On the other hand, if the unbelieving spouse walks out, you've got to let him or her go. You don't have to hold on desperately. God has called us to make the best of it as peacefully as we can. You never know, wife, the way you handle this might bring your husband back not only to you but to God. You never know, husband, the way you handle this might bring your wife not only back to you but back to God. Do you get the idea that God has grace to cover it all? They are different situations, different relationships, and God has grace to cover it all. Paul's not saying, this is the goal. Everyone's got to make this one standard. He's saying there is grace to cover it all. And he ends with real wisdom. Don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. God, not your marital status, defines you. Don't think I'm being harder on you than on others. I give this counsel in all my churches. We're told, don't be wishing you were somewhere else with someone else else. You are here with Jesus. That is enough. Where you are is God's place for you, and he has good things for you. Let God, not your marital status, define your life. God does an amazing job defining your life, your marriage, not so much. God has good things for you, whatever relationship state you are in. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about singleness first. Paul was not married, Jesus was not married, and the Bible has a lot to say about singleness. Christianity is actually the first religion that held up not getting married as a good, viable life choice. In Roman and Jewish culture, getting married and having a family was extremely important. There was no honor without family, and your life had no significance without the legacy of children, especially male children, to carry on the family name. Uh, children were, were your um, security, they were your purpose, they were what you had in life. Your hope was your children, your security was your children. You did not have a retirement plan. Your children were your legacy since they would remember you and honor you after death. But early Christians said that God was their hope. God would guarantee them their future. Their family would be the church family of God and their inheritance and legacy would be the kingdom of God. The best things in the Christian life you do not have to be married for. Purpose, community, the spiritual blessings of Jesus, all of these are experienced in myself. No need to be married. We are called to the joy of a spiritual life following Jesus, and that's something we experience in and of ourselves. 
me and Jesus, what we have to go on, whether married or single, is me and Jesus. But, but, we do not do it alone. We all need community. Community is the answer. Marriage will not solve loneliness. At our wedding, our, our wedding song was Etta James at last. It's a great song. Etta James is iconic. Uh, Beyonce did, did a cover of it. It's okay, too. Um, but the, uh, the words are, at last my love has come along. My lonely days are over. And if there is any truth to that statement, as we dance to it at our wedding, staring into each other's eyes, if there's any truth that our lonely days were over, it was because we were surrounded by friends and family, people who were committed to us and involved in our lives, who knew us and were involved in the fabric of our life. Divorced or single, community is the answer. Gay or straight, community is the answer. Married for one year or 20 years, community is the answer. Community is where we form healthy relationships with men and women, younger and older people with kids, with people without kids. The church should be our first family, the place where we have healthy relationships and then can remain healthy, whether married or single. I really believe that community is the answer, not marriage. Marriage will not solve loneliness. And, spoiler alert, marriage will not make you happy. One of the things I really believe is that it is better to be unhappily single than unhappily married. I just know so many people who think that marriage will make them happy and they are unhappily single and maybe they're in a, a dating relationship and they see some red flags and some incompatibilities, but like, it's fine, it's fine. Being married, you know, even if it's not the best marriage, it will be so much better. But you come to the end of the day single, unhappily single. You've done whatever you wanted over the day, you go to bed by yourself, cold and lonely, you fall asleep a little sad. You come to the end of the day unhappily married, and you have the burden and the baggage of things you have said that were not nice, and the guilt, and, and you've got embarrassment, you have had th hurtful things said to you, and you come to the end of the day, and you stay awake all night angry and hurt. The grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is green where we are whole and healthy, whether that's married in community or single in community. Marriage will not make you happy. In marriage, we are still responsible for our own happiness the same way we were single. My sister and I have both experienced some of this. Having a twin sister is a fascinating case study. But my sister and I both got married after, you know, towards the end of our 20s. And during our 20s, we had done a number of things. Some of them were hard. Some of them were difficult. Um, we had moved, had job changes, had to make new friends, dated, broken up. Um, I had moved halfway across the country and halfway across the world. And uh, we had had real moments of unhappiness. But both of us are kind of type A people. And we looked at our moments of unhappiness and said, well, this is my choice. I better make myself happier. And so we had made life changes, and we had made ourselves happier. And then both of us got married, and we quickly realized that our lives were so intertwined and so dependent on another person, and it was so easy now to just say, oh, he did something I didn't like. I have to do this thing. I'm not. It was so easy to put our happiness on another person. 
I cannot look to Stephen to make me happy. That is not fair and not right, and it is too big a burden for anyone else to have to carry. Don't ask your spouse to make you happy. That is too big a burden for them to carry. I'm responsible for my own happiness in the face of real stress and strain. Difficult circumstances is up to me. It's up to me to notice the moments of beauty, to enjoy the good things in life. It's up to me to receive love and peace from Jesus. It's up to me to get help when I need help. It's up to me to find time to rest and relax. We're responsible for ourselves, and we're also responsible for ourselves and not the results. One of my good friends, um, we've known each other for 20 years. She's very successful. She just started her second company. So proud of her. Um, very successful. She has not been so lucky in love. I don't understand why. I think she's the most delightful person ever. Um, and at the end of each, uh, currently, at the end of each relationship, those crying phone calls, I'll just say to her, Mandy, like, did you do right? Did, were you true to yourself? Were you, you know, considerate and kind and encouraging to him? You know, were you abusive to him? No. You know, did you do right by yourself? Did you maintain boundaries emotionally, stay true to who you were? She'd be like, yes, yes. I'm like, I'm so proud of you then. That's something to be proud of, and that's wonderful and good, and that's all you can ask of yourself. And it continues into marriage. I cannot make a great marriage. I can't. I cannot make a great marriage but I can be a great partner and spouse. Looking to your spouse to make you happy, there's a word for that. It's, uh, it's called codependency. And codependency finds your happiness in another person, not yourself and God. Codependency takes responsibility for the other person instead of yourself. Codependency tries to fix and rescue the other person. And ultimately, codependency is the opposite of love. Love is a free response to the other person, not um, your, your own needs. So that's a little bit about singleness. And singleness leads, if we are healthy singly, maybe, into marriage. Let's unpack what Paul is talking about in this passage. What does Christian marriage look like? if we should so choose. Lots has been said about this. Lots and lots and lots and lots. Uh, lots has been said about how hard marriage is, um, what a troubled state marriage is in, high divorce rate, changes in marriage, etc., etc. But marriage has always been hard, and real marriage, I think, has always been unusual. Christian marriage has never been and never will be typical. It is a deeply spiritual calling that requires the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the help of Christian community. Let's examine um, how we think about this. So traditionally, uh, traditionally, marriage is seen as a commitment, and that is certainly very true. Marriage is most definitely a commitment. More recently, um, it's a bit more in the last 50, 60 years, more of a contract, right? You and I are going similar places. Let's team up. Um, as long as it's helpful for both of us, we can team together um, and try and improve our life. And we definitely believe that marriage is a commitment, and we believe that marriage should help us in self-fulfillment. But the biblical model of marriage says it is not really either one, but it's actually a covenant, a deeply spiritual union between two people. 
centered on Jesus. Traditionally, uh, marriage has been viewed as one person being dependent on the other. Typically, you know, the woman, though there may be different, um, if we go to the next slide, though there may be different areas in which we depend on the other person. Um, more modern view of marriage says we are independent. We got our own spheres, we can do life by ourselves. But the biblical model of marriage is that we are both dependent on the other. We are interdependent. We both need each other in different areas. We are diverse, we are different, but we are joined together. And then lastly, um, the view of where um, our authority comes from. Traditionally, it's from the man. The man calls all the shots. He, um, he, he says what goes. Um, more modern view of marriage, each has their own spheres of authority. We make our own decisions. We stand up for ourselves. But the Bible says that we want to empower each other and live ultimately under God's authority. Christian marriage is not about equality. It's about oneness. It's not about one person being the boss. It's about Jesus being the boss. It's good, right, Sue? Amen. Jesus-centered marriage is all in also. Jesus does not hold back from us. And when we enter into the high calling of marriage with the help of Jesus, we do not hold back either. Marriage is 100%, 100%. We usually think of it as 50-50. But if marriage is 50-50, you know what happens? Quickly becomes 60-40. Well, that's not fair. There's tensions, there's argument. Next thing you know, it's 40-40. That evens it out. Next thing you know, it's 20%, 15%, and your marriage is mediocre at best. 50-50 is a race to the bottom. 100%, 100% is a race to the top. And this is not an excuse for one person to be all in and 100% and the other person to, to take advantage. The Bible is not okay with one person being the doormat, being used or, or, or abused, but it is so much easier if I decide at the beginning of the day how I'm going to be, that I'm going to be all in. It is so much easier if I decide if I do not wait to see how nice my husband is to me in the morning before I decide how nice I'm going to be to him. I want my marriage to be a race to the top. And then next, Jesus-centered marriage is vulnerable and honest. We can call this communication. We can call this emotionally clarity. We can call it being real about ourselves. We want to be honest and open about where we are at. Communication is me being truly and authentically 100% myself in a stance of love. And this can be difficult. For example, um, Monday night I was speaking at an event up in Boston, and um, we've developed the habit since I'm a raging extrovert. You do not want to see me come home at 10 o'clock at night and be like, Stephen, let's talk about my day. It will last for way too long, and he will not be interested. So, so we talk on the phone as I come back, so that gives us a chance to you know, talk, and I don't you know, run around the house at 11 o'clock at night. Um, so we're having this really great conversation, and um, I'm really enjoying our conversation. Uh, I pull into our driveway. Uh, my husband says, hey, you just got in? Okay, bye. And you know what? I, I didn't like it. What I wanted him to say was, Sarah, this is the best conversation I've had with you since yesterday. And I can't wait for you to get in and for us to continue this conversation for a long time, maybe holding hands while we do it. 
So I gather up my stuff, go into the kitchen and put away my things from the day. And I know, as I walk into the living room, I know that I have an option. I can be like, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. It's never fine. It's never fine. But I can just, I can, you know, just get over it. Or I can sound a little bit like my five-year-old and say, you know, that hurt my feelings. I was loving our conversation. So I sounded a little bit like my five-year-old and said, I would like to continue our conversation. I'm sad about how I ended, and it's a very important conversation to me. Anyways, communication is about us being open about where we are at and who we are, regardless of whether we sound like a five-year-old when we say it. The principle is... <coughs> Sorry. The principle is headlights, not taillights. Tell your partner you are tired and cranky verbally before you give them a live demonstration. <laughs> Tell your partner you had a stressful day at 5 p.m. when it is sharing, not at 8 p.m. when it's an excuse. We want to create opportunities to serve, not obligations to cope. It's a very common complaint in marriage that spouses are asked to be mind readers. I want my husband to tell me when he's having a bad day. And with just like 10 minutes alone before dinner, I would much rather serve him in that way than have a mediocre family dinner together, right? But it's hard for me to share when I just can't handle doing the dinner again and I would like him to do that. I don't want to admit that to him. I would much rather prefer that he is a mind reader and intuits my needs without me really even having any needs. He just thinks it'll help out. You know, I don't have to be vulnerable and have needs. He just knows what would be nice. Do you all want to hear about our worst fight? You're like, no, I really, really don't. Um, our worst fight in recent memories, we actually had much worse fights before we got married. It was all about what happens if we get married and it's bad. That didn't happen so much, so that um, you know, fight has been taken off the table. Um, but something happened. Um, there are no innocent parties in this. We looked at each other like, oh, oh. Um, put on a movie for the kids, um, went to the room, um, looked at each other, and then we said, I love you. I'm on your side. He said, I love you. I'm on your side. We gave each other a hug. And then we had a good argument. But we want to be in a fundamental orientation to each other where you can say, I love you. I am for you. Here are all the good things that you bring to the table. I'm so happy to be at this table with you. Let's talk about this side dish. Because frankly, I hate it. <laughs> but I'm on your side. And we do, of course, want to say that being on someone's side does not mean sitting next to them while they drive off a cliff. Being on someone's side does not mean, um, you know, being an accomplice to sin, letting them treat you badly, allowing them to be a jerk. Being on someone's side means helping both of you together to be better people. Marriage is about saying, I'm on your side, in good times and in bad times, for the best, towards the best, for a real, authentic marriage. Um, let's start wrapping up. Uh, worship team, if you guys want to um, come back up, worship team. Our relationships are a canvas on which redemption is put into real life. Each interaction has meaning. 
How we say hi is significant. Our, our choice to stop, to pause, to give a hug, to listen, it's significant. Our choice to prioritize love, to put our relationship first, to ask simple questions, it's all significant. To say it's you and me together with our stuff, with our problems, we're together and I'm on your side. This is what Jesus says to us. He has seen it all. He knows how frustrating we can be. He sees us fully, and he loves us without reservation. Jesus has seen the worst in me. He has put up with a lot from me, a lot of bad attitude from me, and he has washed it all away, not with judgment, not with condemnation, not with you should be betters, but he has washed it all away in a strong current of grace. Jesus stares down my failures and flaws and sin with the love in his eyes. With his hand, he brushes away my shame and embarrassment. The love in his eyes sets me free. He has brought healing to my soul. Jesus is on my side so I can be on yours. Jesus is on my side. How can I let these things hold me back from being on your side? In relationships, we get to be open and honest about who we are. And we get to allow grace to minister to us. Let's stand and and pray together. I know that this can be a really hard topic. We have lots of history. Um, No matter where we are, we have lots of history with this topic. But Jesus has grace for all of it. Jesus is not looking for us to meet one very specific, defined relationship goal that he can bless. Jesus wants to bless you and meet you right where you are here and now. Our sermon series is called Imperfect Together, and there is not one perfect relationship Jesus meets us in it. Um, I invite you to, if you want to open your hands and take a couple of deep breaths, just turn to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Any encounter with God is an encounter with love. It's how he comes to us. It's how he meets us. It's always with love. So we open ourselves to you this morning, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would... um, Take away anything that is not from you and replace it with your hope, your promise, your grace, your love. Would you melt our hearts to each other? Would we stand stable and secure in who you are and how you have loved us, Jesus, that we have nothing to fear, we have nothing to worry about. We are not alone, we are not forsaken. You are right here with us and you offer us more than we could ever ask or imagine. In you are found incredible treasures, um, deep, deep stores of purpose and relationship and love and fulfillment. We say yes to life in you, Jesus. Would you melt our hearts to each other, melt our hearts with love, Jesus. Give us a softness to one another. In Jesus' name. Let's enter into a time of worship.
celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done for us.